Genesis chapter 19. Last week, we looked at the, the happy side of Genesis chapter 19. You may be sitting here going, wait, that was happy? <laughs> um, we looked at God's mercy and, and the fact that his mercy is greater than our mistakes. His mercy is greater than our sin. It's greater than our, our inconsistency. It's greater than the, than the failures that we have as people. God's mercy is greater. And we looked at the story of Lot um, here in, in the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this morning, we're going to look at the flip side of God's mercy. Does anybody have any idea what that is? Don't look at the screen. Anybody? His judgment, right? His judgment. We often see those as, as sort of two sides of the same coin, do we not? We see God's justice or his judgment on one side, and then on the other side, we see the fact that he is a merciful and a loving God. And both of those things, all of those things are 100% true about this God. And that's one of the reasons why I really like uh, the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis gives us, in many ways, a more full view of the character of God than we often find in the New Testament. Not that the New Testament is lacking in judgment. We're going to get to some, some passages about that a little bit later on. But a lot of times, you know, especially when you're, when you're reading these, these uh, words to the churches, uh, Paul and, and John and Peter, um, they're emphasizing, and James, they're emphasizing a lot of faith and grace and love which is necessary because the church has come out of a time of uh, those who in the Jewish, Jewish circles coming out of uh, Judaism, coming out of a time where the law was, was oppressive. And, and so grace was important to them to, to grasp, to understand. But even those who were coming from, uh, from a pagan lifestyle to think that, that this God, who, who they knew as the God of judgment, a God of Israel, wanted to have a relationship with them who are not even his chosen people. Um, that grace and that love and that mercy is important in that New Testament to help us show that God saves man in spite of ourselves. But this morning, we're going to look at God's sovereign judgment. And I've got four points for you this morning. We'll see them hopefully as we go through. Um, if you can see that. Can everybody read that? We're good? All right. God's sovereign judgment. And we throw this word sovereign in there at the beginning, kind of actually in the middle of this phrase, right? God's sovereign judgment. And we use that word a lot when we talk about God, especially when we look at the book of Genesis. We, we, we view the book of Genesis very much so in, in this idea of God's sovereignty. But what does sovereignty mean? I just want to take a minute and remind ourselves, what is sovereignty? When we say that God is sovereign, what do we mean? You can answer. It's not A&I time, but you can answer. What? Overall, all right. He is the rightful ruler, right? A sovereign is a ruler. It's someone who has the right to rule over something. So God is the sovereign over all, right? And we get that from Genesis chapter 1, do we not? In the beginning, God, who already existed before time, before matter, Created the heavens and the earth, right? He is before all. He is over all. He is sovereign. He is the rightful owner and ruler of everything that we see and everyone that has ever existed. He is sovereign. And that sovereignty gives him the right then to do whatever he desires. Because everything that we see, every person that we know is owned by God, because he created them. And so God is sovereign. So when we look at these judgments that, that God performs in the book of Genesis, we've already seen one big one. What was that? The flood, right? That was a massive judgment on all the inhabitants of the earth, except for how many? Eight. Good job. Except for eight. It was those, those little numbers you, you tend to forget if you're not thinking about it, right? Except for eight. Eight people out of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people. Eight saved for the purpose that he designed, for his sovereign purpose. So his judgment is a sovereign thing. 
And we're going to see, even as we look at this passage, that even though God's sovereignty allows him to judge, there are, there are different aspects of it that I want to look at. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of someone being unjustly accused? Every kid's hand was like, yes, that's me. 90% of the time, right? I am unjustly accused, right? There's a lot of that going on in my house, all right? There's a lot of, lot of people thinking, thinking they are unjustly accused uh, many times. But once in a while, we do hear of someone who, um, who has been in prison for 20 years or something like that, right? And all of a sudden, you hear that they've been let go because we found out through more recent means, usually DNA testing or something like that, that they're not the culprit, right? They're not the person that committed the crime. And so they are then released. They, they, they were falsely accused. And then finally, years later, they are released. In fact, there are probably many who have been falsely accused who either died in prison or were hanged or already, you know, gotten rid of in, in other, some other form and died being falsely accused. Because... Our judicial system, as much as we try to, you know, do well with it, our judicial system's not perfect. Am I right? We're all humans. We all make mistakes. We can all be um, manipulated. That's a, that's a lawyer's job, right? When he, when he gets up or she gets up and stands in front of the jury, his job is to try to get the jury to see things his way. And so our, as much as we try to, to, to have checks and balances in our system, and some people say we have too many, some people say we don't have enough, uh, as much as we try to figure out what that looks like, we fail and we make mistakes when it comes to justly accusing and sentencing and carrying out the sentence for those that we accuse who, who have done wrong. But God is not like us. Aren't you thankful for that? God is not like us. The first thing I want to see about God's sovereign judgment is that it is justly executed. It is justly executed. God never makes a mistake in who he judges. He never makes a mistake in who he judges. Think about that. If you feel like God is judging you for something, he's not making a mistake. Of course, we know Romans tells us that all of us deserve judgment, right? We all deserve judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says the way, for, I'm sorry, for Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What we've earned for our sin is judgment. It's death. So God is a judge who judges justly. Say that three times fast. God is a judge who judges justly. God's sovereign judgment is justly executed. And I want to go back real quickly to chapter 18. Flip over to chapter 18, starting in verse 20. Remember, God has, has met with Abraham, and he's, uh, he's telling Abraham what's going on. He's getting ready to go down to Sodom to, to, to see what's going on here. And listen what he says. He says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, what will I do? I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. What is he saying there? Now, God is all-knowing, right? He knows everything that's going on. He doesn't have to do this. But what is he doing? He's telling, I almost said Moses. He's telling Abraham that I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and I'm going to find out if everything that everyone is crying about is true. And if it's not true, I'm going to know. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to find out if they deserve to be judged. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to go down. I'm going to find out if they deserve to be judged. And it's interesting that, you know, God says that he hears the cry of people about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a horribly wicked place. And of course, we saw some of that last week. The wickedness, just prevalent in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and God says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to look at it. I'm going, to, I'm going to evaluate whether or not they need to be judged. Now, did God know 
the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, he did. But I think he's making a point here. He's emphasizing the fact that he judges justly. Of course, then we have the conversation between Abraham and God where Abraham's saying, yes, but you know, if there's 50 people, if there's 50 righteous people, will you, will you spare the city? And God says, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Why? Because there's 50 righteous people. There's enough righteous people that it's worth sparing the city to God. Of course, we know he didn't find even 10, right? Not even 10. Abraham works him down. To, works him down. <laughs> Abraham gets down to 10 people, righteous people, and you'll spare the city. And God says yes. And yet, the only righteous man that we know of is Lot. And so God sends his angels into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to verify that what he is about to do is just because he's a just God. And it's interesting, what it, we looked last week in, in chapter 19, go to verses 4 and 5. What did they find? Was the outcry valid? Yes, it was, right? Verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called, out, called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Right? And the angels witness this crowd, this throng of people from Sodom all around Lot's house and the wicked intent that they have. And of course, in the end, we know that, that they end up bringing Lot back in and causing blindness to the men so that they wear themselves out trying to find the door. And the angels witness right in front of them the wickedness of Sodom. God's sovereign judgment is justly executed. These were not innocent men who were about to be judged by God. Because of this, God chooses to destroy the wickedness that is Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only is God's sovereign judgment justly executed, but God's sovereign judgment is timely executed. It's timely executed. God has waited to this point. You ever find that interesting? God has waited till this point to judge a very wicked area of the world. We don't know how long these, uh, these cries have been going up. I would guess for quite some time because we know way back when Lot and, and, and Abraham split, Scripture tells us that Sodom was a very wicked city, right? And we don't know, I don't remember exactly. I think we do know it's been, what, 10 years, something like that. I forget off the top of my head. I didn't look it up. But it's been some time, and they were already known as a wicked city when that happened. And so I can imagine for years and years and years, outcry to, this, to, to God from others about this city has gone up and God has done nothing until now. Have you ever felt like you were on the, uh, the waiting end of judgment? Whether it's for yourself or for someone else. I remember as a kid, my, my parents would, you know, send me back to their room when I did something wrong because their room was the farthest room in the house, you know, so you had the long walk back to mom and dad's room and you knew what was coming. And of course, you're sitting there on the bed and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're like, is this, are we going to do this or, or what, <laughs> you know? And, and, and then sometimes they would come in and, and take care of things, and sometimes they wouldn't come in. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. Uh, and did they forget about me? You know, I know judgment's coming, but did they forget about me? Or uh, if, if, you're, if you're on the other end as the parent, sometimes you send the child to, to go wait, and you get involved doing something else. Now, that usually doesn't happen if you're really upset, right? <laughs> but if it's one of those things like you just... I have to go deal with this now. And you, and you, you give them some time because you want to cool down. You want to discipline in, in the right way, right? And then, you know, one of the other children does something or asks you a question. And all of a sudden, 
30 minutes later, my wife says to me, are you going to go take care of that? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And then I have to remember what they did wrong. Um, yeah, sometimes. That's why, yeah. <laughs> AJ's like, that's why he asked us what we did wrong, because he can't remember. Sometimes, that's true, yes. So what did you do wrong so that I can take care of this? God is not like that, right? God does not forget about us. He, even, all this time he's waited to, to pour out judgment on this wicked city. That was all part of his plan. He didn't do it because he forgot about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had a time and any purpose. He had something that he wanted to accomplish through this judgment. It was a timely executed judgment. It's interesting, even in this passage, we see God delaying, do we not? Because they come in, and they, they come to the city, and, and, and Lot says, hey, come stay at my house, and then you can leave in the morning, right? He doesn't know anything about the judgment that's coming yet. Um, in my mind, I think it would have made sense for them, you know, as soon as they get in the house, to be like, okay, here's the deal, Lot. Forget the meal. Get your stuff packed up. We're out of here, because God's going to be judging this place. I mean, I feel like that makes the most sense, right? Go get, go get whoever you need, get out of here, let's go. But that's not what they say. They go through this process. They, go, they, they have a great meal. They are getting ready to lay down to go to sleep. And, of course, everything happens with the men of the city. And then what happens? After all that calms down, then they say, okay, now go get anybody else and bring them here, right? Bring them here. Anybody else that you want to be saved, that you want to preserve from this, bring them here. And then we have, you know, Lot going to his son-in-laws and them laughing because it just doesn't make sense the way that he's trying to, get, trying to save them. They think that he's, that he's joking. And then they don't leave. Did you catch that? Then they don't leave. You'd think after that they'd be like, okay, so nobody else? All right, pack up, let's go. No, they go to bed. God is going to send fire and brimstone down upon the plains, these cities, and they all go to bed. I mean, this just seems a little weird for God to keep waiting and waiting and waiting. So they get up the next morning, right? We talked about this last week. They get up the next morning, and they said, okay, get your stuff, get out, go to the hills, right? And then you've got Lot, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a finigler, right? He's... He's, one of the, he's a wheeler and dealer. Let me, go to, let me go to this place. Let me go to this little city. It's just a little one. Let me go there. Okay, fine. But you've got to go. Why? Why did he say you have to go? Get out of here. Because I can't bring judgment until you're gone. Think about that. God's timing was perfect. God in his sovereignty had every right to rain down fire and brimstone on this city at any point in the last decade, probably even before, well, for sure even before that. At any point, he could have done this. But yet he waits till now, after he's had this, this interaction with Abraham, after he's had this interaction with Lot, after he's waited a whole other night, he waits till then. And even then, he says, I cannot destroy the cities." Until you are safe, until you are gone. It's timely, but it's in his time. God had decided that his promise to Abraham, even though he only found one, would still be fulfilled by saving that one, by saving the righteous that was there. And so, therefore, his timing was executed in a way to make sure that that would happen. God waited until his promise to Abraham was complete, until Lot had been saved. God's sovereign judgment is timely executed. It doesn't always seem like it's timely executed, though, does it? We'll come back to that here in a minute. Not only is God's sovereign judgment timely executed, but his sovereign judgment is absolutely executed, absolutely or completely executed. 
Now we get into our passage from this morning. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Remember, dawn was just beginning to break when he left. The city was close enough that he was able to make it there by the time that the sun was rising. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Think about that. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This judgment's pretty intense, is it not? Sulfur and fire. You know, it's interesting. I was reading through several commentaries and and there's an idea that perhaps this was actually um, performed. Again, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of trying to explain God's miracles, um, but it's an interesting thought. This may have perhaps been a volcanic explosion in the area. Um, I don't know. There's some interesting arguments for it. But whether it was a natural phenomenon that God used or whether it was literally fire and sulfur falling from heaven, it was intense. It was devastating. God's judgment was absolute. It was final. It was sure. There was no mistaking God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But not only was his judgment intense, but the destruction was complete. What does it say? It says, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. That's pretty complete, is it not? It says he overthrew not just the cities, but the entire valley. Everything. All the people that lived there, all the grass that grew in the fields was burned up, was destroyed. His judgment was absolute. It was complete. That's a lot of destruction. You know, we think of, we think of these cities, you know, I mean, we think about you know, Kansas City. It's not, it's not a city like the size of Kansas City. And we don't think of Kansas City as a very big city. So these were smaller cities. They were typically walled in. But yet God destroyed them. Not just the wickedness of the city, but the wickedness of the plains. Basically, everything in the valley was destroyed except Zoar. Except that one place where, where Lot was sent. Everything else in the valley is destroyed. We keep reading. We'll skip verse 26 for now. And Abraham, verse 27, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. One of the nice things about fall and and even winter is, you know, going down the road and seeing all these fireplaces and all the smoke that's coming out because people are still burning wood instead of gas. It's fabulous, right? And it's, and it's just a nice thing. We see this, this these, these smoke come up and we think, oh, man, that's, that's so warm and inviting, right? That's, that's kind of the picture that we have of smoke. But the picture that, that really God is giving here is one of the house that just burned down. Have you ever driven past a house that has just burned down and the smoke that is still rising from that and the smell that is rising from, can you imagine that? That smell of a house that's been burned down? Multiply that by a city. Multiply that by multiple cities. And here Abraham is approximately, I think it was three miles away if I remember correctly, looking down on this valley and he just sees the smoke rising and the destruction that God has wrought on this valley is intense. It's complete. It's utter destruction. When God judges, 
He judges absolutely. There's no, yeah, I'm just going to judge you guys a little bit over here. He judges sin completely. God's sovereign judgment is absolutely executed. But not only that, God's sovereign judgment is fittingly executed. What in the world are you talking about? The judgment fits the crime. The judgment fits the crime. We know the crime of Sodom and Gomorrah, the wickedness of those cities, the wickedness of the people, and God destroys them utterly, completely, to where you almost wouldn't even know they were there. Everything down to the blades of grass destroyed because of the wickedness of those men. But not only the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have that verse that we skipped, verse 26. This is an interesting uh, passage, and, and Jesus even references back to it in Luke. But it says in verse 26, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I don't know exactly how this happened, right? I remember seeing uh, some cartoon years ago when I was a kid, and, you know, they, they per, I don't know how they dealt with all the material, but they, uh, they, had, they had Lot and his wife and his daughters escaping. And I remember they're running away from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is not accurate. But they're running away from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And there's, you know, fires is coming down behind them and, and all this stuff. And you see Lot's wife look back and she turns around and then, boom, you got to, Picture of Lot's wife as iodized salt, right? That's, that's pretty much what you, I mean, is that not the picture that you typically get, right? The, Lot's wife, is just, you know, she becomes like this picture of herself as salt, made out of salt, right? I don't, I don't know if that's what it looked like. You know, the Bible doesn't really tell us. It, it tells us that she, what? Verse 26 says that she became a pillar of salt. All right? I don't know if that you could necessarily distinguish the fact that she was a woman anymore. All right? She just, just, just says that she became a pillar of salt. And it's interesting where this is at in the process, right? It's interesting where it's noted because we get this idea of her running away from the city and the destruction that's happening because of where it's at in our, in our passage, Right? We see that the sun's risen on the earth and that God is raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says that Lot's wife looked behind um, and, and she became a pillar of salt. So we kind of, our minds kind of put those two things together. But yet we know that Lot had to be safe in Zoar before fire and brimstone, fire and, and sulfur came down, right? So to me, it seems like Lot's wife just couldn't handle it. She couldn't give up everything that she was leaving. Now, I don't think, personally, I don't think this was just a, a, a quick glance behind her. I think she stopped. I think she stopped because we know the destruction didn't start until Lot came to Zoar, until he was safe. And so somewhere along the way, I think Lot's wife was like, what are we doing? Why am I, why am I leaving everything that I have? Everyone that I love, why am I, why am I leaving all of this? And whether she started back or whether she just stayed in one place, we don't know. But at some point, she made the decision not to continue. And when God brought the destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah, she was included. She was included. Some people, one of the reasons why they talk about these... Uh, Volcanoes is because it's a very salty place. Where is Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody remember? It's by the Dead Sea. There's a lot of salt in the Dead Sea. Did you know that? And so one of the things that they say is that's possibly how she basically became a pillar of salt from the sediment that would have fallen on her. We don't know. That's just men saying, hey, maybe this is how it worked. But what we do know is that she was no longer protected by God. 
because she chose the things of Sodom over obedience. Yes, the destruction of Sodom was, was warranted. It, it, the, the, the judgment fit the crime. They were a wicked, horrible city. But yet her heart was still there. Her heart was still longing after those things and those people. And so she also was part of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have kind of a, a tough passage here at the end. Verses 30 through 38, I won't take the time to read through it again. We read through it already. But here we have Lot and his daughters. It's interesting that he leaves Zoar. Did you notice that? Why did he leave Zoar? Because he was afraid. He looked around at the rest of the valley and all he saw was destruction. You thought Abraham had a pretty good view from three miles away. Lot had a really good view. Everything around him was destroyed. And he was afraid, and so he took his two daughters and he went up into the caves. And we have this, this story about these two daughters who, um, it's interesting, their fear, right? Their fear was that they would never get married and have children. I don't know, I don't know why they had that fear. Did they think they were going to be stuck in the caves for the rest of their life? I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't explain it. But for some reason, they have this fear that they will never go through the normal process of life. They've, they've obviously lost their husband that, to be, right? They were both engaged. We had these sons-in-laws. Um, and and they, they decide upon this wicked act to ensure that they um, have a normal life in their eyes to ensure that they have the ability to have children and, and so that the normal process of life, the, thing, the way that life should work, works out. And you, and you kind of ask yourself, what in the world do we do with this passage? You know, why in the world would God tell us about this? And I think, at least in my opinion, this is part of God's judgment. And remember I said God's judgment is fitly, fittingly executed. The punishment fits the crime. And I can't help but think back to when all of his house was surrounded by these men. And here's Lot. And what does he do to try to fix the situation? He says, leave these men alone. I'll give you my two daughters who are already engaged. Promise to someone else, I'll give you them do whatever you want. And we kind of had this discussion last week. Did, did they hear what he said? The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. My assumption is they probably did. I think, I think they probably heard. Because it's easy to look at these two daughters and think, man, they were really wicked girls. And they were. But I can't help but look at what they did as part of God's judgment even on Lot. And we talked a lot last week about God's mercy. And he is 100% just in being merciful. But he's also 100% just in allowing judgment. Even on those who are righteous. Because those of us who are righteous in the sight of God, that doesn't mean that we're perfect, right? We're certainly not perfect. We certainly fail every single day to live up to God's standard. We are only righteous in his eyes because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because of the faith that we have in him. And Lot, again, is not righteous because he's perfect. He's righteous, I believe, because of his faith in God. So even though Lot received mercy and that his life was spared, I think this passage is also judgment for the way that he handled that situation by offering his daughters up. And here then we have them sort of turning the tables on the situation, do we not? Well, I'll tell you what, let's get dad drunk. And you notice basically he's so drunk, he doesn't even know what's going on. He has no, no knowledge that they come in or that they leave. He's that drunk. 
And he said, let's get dad drunk and we'll have children by him. And for the rest of Lot's life, he's going to have to look at these boys and know that that's what he produced. His lifestyle. Potentially even thinking back to that time when he offered his daughters to those men. I think this is part of God's judgment on Lot. His judgment is fittingly executed. Now we look at this story and we think, that's great. Those are great points, but you've still got 10 minutes, so what are we going to do with the rest of the time? No, I'm kidding. What about us, right? What about us? This is great for Lot. That's, you know, it, well, not great. <laughs> it's judgment, right? It's great to understand about Lot. It's great to see that God is a just God, that, he, that he, um, he's going to, to, to execute his judgment justly, that he's going to execute it timely. He's going to execute it absolutely. But what does that mean for us? Well, I want to look at some New Testament passages real quickly. Because each of these points also applies to us today. This isn't just the God of the Old Testament. This isn't just the God of Genesis. This is the God that we serve even today. Yes, even the God of the New Testament is a God of judgment. And God's sovereign judgment is just, justly executed in Romans chapter eight verses, Romans chapter one verses 18 through 25. It says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness." and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Paul reminds us that God, even this God, that he's going to spend the next, what, 15 chapters discussing his grace? Even that God is a God of judgment. And his grace is perfected in the fact that he is a God of judgment. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in verses 17 through 18. This, is, this comes right after the famous John three sixteen, Right? Yes, God loves the world and gave himself for it. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's condemned already. That's why Jesus didn't preach to the crowds sermons of condemnation. You remember when we went through the book of John, he preached to the crowds sermons of hope, calling and longing for them to believe in him because he was the only salvation. Because if they didn't believe in him, they were already condemned. Before we accepted Christ as our Savior, we were already condemned to punishment, to judgment, to death because of our sin. We said it earlier, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. What we've earned because of our sin is death. It's judgment. God's sovereign judgment is justly executed. We deserve that judgment. God's sovereign judgment is timely executed. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He says, there is a day that is appointed where Jesus Christ, the one who came to save man, will judge him. There is coming a day, it is already set in God's timeline where every human being will be judged. Judgment is coming. There is a specific time when it will happen. It is timely executed. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it, is, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's coming a day when all of us will be judged. We are all going to die. It's a fact of life. And after that, there is judgment. Psalm 73, verses 16 through 19. But when I thought how to understand this, this is, this is uh, I think it's Asaph, looking at the wickedness of the world and seeing how they only get what they want. They're gluttonous and they just get fat and everything is happy and go lucky and, and life is great for them. And, it's, and he's like, I'm trying to serve God and everything's going poorly for me. Why is that? Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. He was reminded, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. There is a time when every man, woman, a child will be judged by God. We don't like to think about that, but it's true. This God of grace and mercy and love that we love to extol in the New Testament is the same God who punished wickedness by utterly destroying it and everything around it in the Old Testament. It's the same God. And one day, there will be a time of judgment. We don't know when that is. It's not in our timetable. We don't get to decide when judgment's going to come, especially those of us who are saved. You know, typically we're like Asaph, right? We, we want God to judge the wicked because a lot of times they make our life harder as we try to serve God. Sometimes we make our own lives harder by continuing to sin. But judgment is coming. God's sovereign judgment is absolutely executed. The wicked will one day be destroyed and we will be judged as well. For 2 Peter 2 verses 1 through 3, talking about false prophets. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Notice this last phrase. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Do you ever feel like people just aren't going to get what they deserve? Life's not fair. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. God is going to absolutely execute his sovereign judgment. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. Judgment is absolute. It is going to happen. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15. John is seeing this vision from God and it says, Then I saw a great white throne 
And him who was seated on it, from his presence earth, the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which, was, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment is absolutely coming. And anyone who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will suffer eternal judgment. It really is coming. It is absolutely executed. Even though God is merciful, even those of us who believe, God still judges us when we sin, does he not? He's a just God. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Who's James writing to? Believers, right? He's writing to believers. And look at what he says. He's lured away and enticed by his own desire. When, then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. There's a natural progression of judgment with sin. Even for those of us who are believers. Now, this death is not eternal death. As we looked at last week, God's merciful in spite of our, our sin, in spite of our ineffectiveness. We are saved, though as by fire. But there's still an impact of sin in our lives today. God is still a just God in allowing judgment in our lives today. I think this verse has always caught my eye when it comes to our sin. Verse, Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Think about that. If I had cherished iniquity, sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. When we live in sin, even as believers, when we live in sin, our relationship with God is destroyed. He doesn't even hear us unless we're coming with 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's sovereign judgment is fittingly executed. Yes, those who have not believed will be destroyed forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. But even those of us who do believe, when we fail, when we sin, there's still judgment because God is a just God and his judgment is required. God is a merciful God, but God is also a judgment God, a just God. One final thought here. God's sovereignty is displayed in both of these things. God's sovereignty is displayed by the perfect balance between his judgment and his mercy. And that's even shown to us in this very strange ending of this passage. Because here we have these two sons. The firstborn son called his name Moab. He, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. If you go further and you look at the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, you'll see that the Moabites and the Ammonites were the enemies of Israel. For centuries, the enemies of Israel. War and battle and fighting, that's the legacy that we get from Lot. Is his sons, born through incest, become the enemies of God's chosen people, the enemies of his uncle Abraham's children. So there's judgment. But yet even in that, there is mercy. Because hundreds of years later, 
there's going to be a Moabite widow who will come back to Israel with her mother-in-law and will marry again to a Jew by the name of Boaz who will be part of the line of Jesus Christ. Is God not sovereign? Is that not amazing? That God, even in his judgment, is doing everything for mercy. That is the God that we serve. And even though Lot never knew that that was going to take place, all he knew about was this, in my opinion, judgment from God on his life. God used even that to bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What a God we serve. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, as we looked at last week. But Lord, we also thank you that you are a God of judgment. And judgment is not something that we look forward to. It's not something that we, uh, we desire. But it's something that we know we deserve. We know the world deserves it. And we know that you are right in bringing it. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your judgment this morning, even during the A&I time, that you would help us to have the proper view of judgment, that we would have the right attitude towards it, that we would, um, that we would allow ourselves to respond to it correctly. But most of all, I pray that you would be glorified as we look at you as the just judger of the world because you are. We thank you that even in your judgment, you are a merciful God and you have provided a way of escape, whether it is through Jesus Christ, the way of escape for eternal judgment because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the 2,000 years ago, Lord. It's still just as powerful for us today. Or whether it's the opportunity to simply choose to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit to lead us out of temptation. You provide a way of escape because you are not just a just God, but you are a merciful God. And we thank you for that this morning. And we praise you for that. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.